Hello and welcome to another edition of the Like a New Day podcast. My name is Zachary Brannigan and I am your host. Uh, we have a fun episode today where I'm going to be talking a little bit about getting published, about uh, the approach to manual photography. We're going to revisit the Leica M10D, and uh, I've got some uh, interesting listener reactions that I wanted to share with you uh, based on our last couple of episodes. So without further ado, let's get started. All right, so first of all, I wanted to share some uh, feedback and some communication that I've gotten uh, after our, our last uh, episode. If you had an opportunity to listen to it, I talked about a concept of uh, crowdsourcing resources to help uh, blue-collar, for lack of a better word, photographers get into the Leica brand to try to expand the brand so that the uh, the historical uh, base of support for Leica cameras, which were the, the working men and women out in the field and uh, war photographers and documentary photographers, newspaper photographers, people that are down there getting their fingernails dirty, taking photographs every day. We want to make sure that those individuals have uh, the opportunity to shoot Leica cameras here in the future. And uh, we have a, a fun and, and interesting concept for developing a community here to make that happen for more people. Also, we talked a little bit about photography and depression and using photography as a, a method of therapy to bring yourself back after a, a low period of, of melancholy. Or, or something more clinical. And uh, I've got some stories that I wanted to share with you a little bit. So. First of all, I wanted to uh, share with you James, James's story. And uh, James, I really appreciate this email. I'm just going to read this out to you here. Hello, I just wanted to drop you a quick note to say how much I've enjoyed the podcast. I've been a passionate amateur photographer for around 20 years, and I have always loved Leica. You really hit me with these latest episodes on how something as seemingly trivial as a camera can help with depression. My mother died suddenly a few years ago, and I took it pretty hard. The fact that life could be cut short in an instant has never left my mind for months. Suddenly, everything seemed meaningless. The thought that I could, myself, be gone at any moment just before turning 40 was unshakable. So I decided that if life was short and unpredictable, I'd better get to doing all the things that I had put off. One of those was getting a Leica M. I told myself it wasn't practical and that my Fujis are better cameras, but deep down, I always wanted to try one. I started relatively cheap with an M8, but the shutter started failing and repairs would be expensive. I was kicking myself for chasing the M, but I couldn't give it up. I found a good deal on a used but well-cared-for M240 and justified the cost by telling myself it would be cheaper in the long run than repairs on the M8. And as stupid as it sounds as I write this, that M240 really is the best investment I have ever made in my mental health. I carry it with me every day, and I just walk around my hometown with no real intent, just getting into the zen of that manual focus. It isn't something easy to describe, but as a Leica user yourself, I'm sure you know what I mean. The camera just feels like an extension of my eye. Nothing gets in the way, so I don't have to think. Just walk, see, snap. I wish I could say my photography has improved drastically, but it's still pretty basic. I like black and white and mostly shoot the banalities of small town Idaho. Anyway, this got longer than I had planned, but I just wanted to say thank you for the podcast, and I'd love to help with the efforts to get these amazing cameras into more hands. Keep up the excellent work and check out my Instagram if you like, at James underscore nine 
volt dc so that's james underscore nine v-o-l-t-d-c so james thanks for that message and first of all it doesn't sound stupid at all uh if you um you know if you're new to the podcast and you haven't heard the other episodes you'll know that i talk a lot about the fact that uh, shooting a, a camera like these is a form of therapy and the end result isn't nearly as important as the process at least to me and especially with m cameras when you've got uh, everything analog and you've got that real uh, that meaty mechanical feel in your hands so james uh thank you very much for that message i think that was great uh that was great and i, I absolutely love these so please keep them coming uh here's another quick one uh, this is from mark Mark says, good morning, Zachary. I've been listening to your podcast as I too have been planning a Leica. I can't decide between the CL and the Q2, but hopefully by the time I get the cash, I will have. Anyway, I was struck by the lowly four-star rating for a Leica product that you discussed in your last episode. I'm personally not sure how it can ever be more acceptable to pursue a more disposable production strategy, which relies on lower cost labor and automation. That's what puts people out of properly paid work making buying a Leica or indeed anything produced to the same ethic that much harder. I do have a Nikon Z6, which gets used for marine photography. Taking pictures of moving objects from another moving object isn't without its problems. Nonetheless, the pictures in magazine articles can be a bit generic, so a more Leica view might help there too. We will see. Anyway, keep up the good work, and eventually more photographers may see these cameras not as luxury items, but as the disruptors of the conventional that they actually are. That's what I'll be paying my money for, Mark. Also from Mark, uh, he followed up with, you know, as an ex-ad man, I do get irritated by the unleash your creativity line that seems to go with each new product launch. Aside from the images that they show you being the usual conventional stuff, will a couple of new features really make you see the world any differently? One of the reasons I'm looking at Leica is that the fewer bells and whistles you have, the more you have to look and think about what you are doing. I couldn't agree more, Mark. That is exactly the kind of thing that we're talking about is that, um, you know, these cameras have a, um, I don't know, they just have a philosophy that makes you shoot photos in such a traditional way that you're really throwing back to composition and that aperture triangle. And, uh, of course, the the in, intangible characteristics of these cameras, uh, that, um, that the click of the shutter and the, the feel of the brass in your hand uh, really do obviously pay dividends. The last message that I want to share with you is from our friend Taylor. Taylor, uh, you might recognize from the last episode, sent me a, a tremendous message about her own um, a very complex story of attempted suicide and post-traumatic stress disorder uh, due largely in part to her life as a NEMT. And um, I had a very wonderful uh, interaction uh, back and forth with Taylor. And Taylor, this goes out to you. Anything worth having is worth earning. I'm only two months away from purchasing her own Leica. And the awesome thing about buying a Leica is that you aren't just buying a disposable electronic. You're making an investment that in four or five years will hold a great value and get me a huge jump on my next Leica. My grandpa was a brick mason for 50 years. He would always say that a house is only as strong as the bricks that were used in the foundation, and I will have my quality brick in October. Uh, absolutely. I mean, a lot of people call like as bricks. Uh, so, you know, hey, couldn't be more literal in that case. So uh, thank you, Taylor. That was wonderful. I've gotten a couple other emails. I've gotten a lot of Instagram messages. And uh, please do me a huge favor and follow me on Instagram. I like to communicate that way. And I like to also put work out there uh, that, uh, you know, maybe we discuss here on the podcast. So you can find me at ZG Brandigan. That's Z-G-B-R-A-N-I-G-A-N. Or you can go to my website, which is ZacharyBranigan.com. And I've got all my links there to socials, and I've got some galleries up there. And from time to time, if I discuss specific images on the podcast, I will put a portfolio up there as well that you can easily find to reference those images. One last thing that I wanted to put out there is uh, I want to talk a little bit about my podcasting hero uh, in photography. 
And it's a gentleman by the name of Neil James. Uh, Neil, I hope that you're listening to this. I know that you're a new subscriber. Uh, Neil James uh, is just an incredibly talented guy. He has a long and um, you know very accomplished history in broadcasting as well as photography. He has uh, achieved some some very high peaks in wedding photography in the United Kingdom and beyond. And um, it was a big honor to be able to talk to him back and forth on Facebook. I've been a fan of his for a while. If you uh, follow other photography podcasts, you might have heard of the FujiCast. It's a rapidly growing uh, podcast that is somewhat centered on Fuji cameras. It's uh, Neil and then a, a partner, another a, a Fuji ambassador uh, by the name of Kevin Mullins, and they just have a fantastic weekly chat. Uh, they have excellent guests. They talk about philosophy of photography. They answer listener questions, and they just put out a really quality product. It's remarkable how good this is. And uh, during the quarantine, a, a significant part of the quarantine, uh, Neil was putting out a daily podcast, sometimes with Kevin, sometimes not. And then after the uh, the large part of the stay-at-home orders were lifted, uh, Neil decided to, to take on the mantle of putting out daily photography podcasts uh, that he called the Photography Daily, and it is wonderful. And basically the model is that he puts out 15 to 20 minute episodes that are excerpts from larger interviews that he runs on the weekends uh, behind a paywall. So this is a way for uh, Neil to earn a few bucks by putting together an extremely high quality product. Um, but even if you're not a subscriber, I'm going to become a subscriber today to his to his behind the paywall so that I can get these longer interviews. He's already had in just a few dozen episodes some remarkable guests and some incredible stories. Uh, also on Fridays, he does a photo walk, and that's when he reads all of his uh, all of his emails uh, and he answers questions and that. And he does so while he's out and about, and he records right into his iPhone and uh, gets remarkable audio quality out of that too. But uh, if you listen to two seconds of uh, a Neil James podcast, you'll understand why it sounds so good. He's got the perfect voice for uh, for audio, for radio, and uh, I wish I was there, but um, I'm doing my best. So anyway, Neil, thanks for the inspiration. I uh, absolutely am uh, passionate about listening to your podcasts and uh, evangelizing them, and uh, the work that you've done over there with the FujiCast and now the Photography Daily uh, are informing the, the way that I want to move forward with uh, Like a New Day. So anyway, thank you very much, Neil. I appreciate it. And I appreciate the shout out. And uh, there you go. I wanted to talk a little bit about getting published uh, today. Uh, one of the things that um, I really like about podcasting is, uh, I, ironically, you know, here it is a essentially a digital media, it actually gets me away from computer screens more than uh, just obsessing over social media in terms of getting the word out. Um, I, uh, I do have some friends in photography here in town um, and, and around me, and they're great, uh, and, and that's wonderful, but there's not a huge photographic community where I live, and I just don't have a lot of time to, um, you know, to travel to interact with other photographers. And I don't know, uh, you know, maybe that's what some of the podcast is, uh, is about for me is reaching out and making connections with other people. So um, that's one more reason why I absolutely love it when you guys send me emails and messages or you, um, you know, connect with me on Facebook or Instagram, especially Instagram. Uh, but these long form emails that some of you have been sending me uh, telling me stories, I, I feel like I have a whole new batch of friends. It's wonderful. And I'm interacting with people like Neil James that I mentioned. Just in a short amount of time, we're creeping up on 2000 listeners already, which is nuts. So anyway, you know, I absolutely adore the ability to go out and take photos. I absolutely adore the ability to, you know, come up with art that I'm proud of. And, um, but, you know, sometimes you wonder, what am I doing this for? If I'm obsessing over social media and my social media is not growing, and even if my social media did grow, what the heck would I do with it? 
I don't know, you know, but for me, I'm coming more and more to the conclusion that my photography is for me. I don't have any professional aspirations. I don't have any aspirations to win major awards in that. But I, you know, of course, you know, why do you take a photo other than to have other people see it and, and understand your point of view? We're artists, correct? So um, I wanted to talk a little bit about my own history with getting some of my images out there in the community. And really, there are two ways uh, that my work has been selected for distribution or has been distributed, especially in the last few years. So um, as many of you know, I'm an independent photographer. I focus on documentary and environmental images. Um, uh, I am here based in Michigan, uh, but I do have a day job. I'm the CEO of an environmental nonprofit. So uh, in that role, I uh, am called upon to, we, we have a staff of only four, so I'm also the social media manager and the outreach person. And um, I pretty much spend, uh, you know, I would say probably 10% of my week uh, curating content for online outreach and distribution. So a lot of the times, uh, I'd say most of the time, those are photographs that I've taken myself and video that I've taken myself as well. So a handful of the uh, publication opportunities I'm going to talk about have come as a result of my professional work as a conservationist, uh, first and foremost, but coupled with my passion for photography and my ability to put some photos together that, that, that actually serve a purpose. And I'll, I'll get into that in a sec. And the other ones are my more personal photography, which really is more observational documentary, street photography type stuff, storytelling photography, and uh, some of the interesting things that have happened with that, especially over the last couple of years. So, And uh, I'm going to start with U.S. News and World Report. This is one of those times when it was uh, largely due to my connection with uh, the Saginaw Basin Land Conservancy, the organization that I, I work for. We were doing a project, uh, we continue to do a project where we're doing vacant land remediation and uh, in an urban community that's been hit hard by uh, flight uh, by uh, economic disinvestment, and it has a huge vacant land issue. So our organization spends a lot of time and energy cleaning up blight blighted vacant landscapes and replacing them with a wildflower meadow. And that's a whole long story of how we got there, but we've literally raised and spent hundreds of thousands of dollars doing so. Well, throughout this process, I've been able to come up with some great images. I've, I've taken photographs of volunteers, of our own staff, um, selfies, time lapses, all that stuff. But also, uh, a lot of times, you know, the people were affecting and the landscapes that were, that were touching. So we were contacted by U.S. News and World Report, who had heard about our effort, thought it was unusual, and started to investigate. They ended up doing a piece on replacing blight with wildflowers, uh, and it focused entirely on us and our effort. And they had discussed uh, possibly sending a photographer out when I offered, you you know, hey, well, you know, I've been taking photographs of this for four or five years. So first of all, uh, I wanted to make sure that the, the message that we're getting out is the one that we wanted to get out. Second of all, um, the time of year that they had contacted me on that, there wasn't a great opportunity for somebody to come shoot. And third of all, most selfishly, I was really hoping that they would choose some of my images because who doesn't want to have their pictures in U.S. News and World Report with their own credit on there? And that is what happened, thankfully. The reporters and editors at U.S. News and World Report that were communicating with me, like my images, made a series of selections out of the images I provided, and they ran those. So that was a huge honor. But So, you know, it was because of the work. They kind of, It wasn't like they just found my portfolio online or, or that I submitted something to them. However, um, you know, I guess the work was strong enough that they felt it was good enough to run in that magazine. So that was pretty neat. I had a great uh, conversation and relationship with the reporter and, and that staff over there. So... Um, that happened again with uh, Lonely Planet not that uh, not that long ago. So Lonely Planet 
uh, contacted us. If you know Lonely Planet, it's all about travel. They publish travel books, and they've got a great website with tons of resources on world travel. And they were running a piece on uh, fun recreational things to do outdoors that were didn't require uh, huge amounts of travel and uh, things you could do closer to home. And they decided to do something on birding ecotourism. They mentioned that in a series of other things. And something very similar happened. I provided them with some images and said, you're welcome to use some of these or, you know, whatever. And they did. And so, uh, you know, one of my images made it onto Lonely Planet, which was cool. Lastly, in that category, the American Institute for Architects Center for Architecture. This is in New York City. Uh, They chose to use a series of my images in an exhibit uh, all about reclaiming communities from the impact of poor legacy of urban renewal programs from the 70s. So this is a complex urban planning and uh, community uh, topic. But uh, at any rate, uh, they did a a facility-wide show about this topic. And they focused on four communities, one of which was Saginaw, Michigan, where we predominantly do our uh, vacant land remediation work. And they ended up using quotes from me and then a bunch of my photos, which was cool. So I made a special trip to New York to witness this uh, exhibit in person. And I got to see my images blown up and on the walls, uh, sort of explaining the situation out there. So that was cool. But I've also had a series of things happen personally uh, in photography that have been fantastic, and I'll tell you about just a couple here. First of all, the International Center of Photography, and also in New York City, uh, recently reached out to me uh, over one of the images that I had on Instagram to select it for inclusion in a show that's coming up there uh, about the cataclysm that is 2020. They had begun uh, conceptualizing this show all around the, basically, people staying at home all around the world. And how it was impacting us. And then, of course, it grew with the social unrest surrounding the murder of George Floyd and the social unrest that's uh, that's creeping up, not just in the United States, but all over the world as a result of uh, this response to, to police brutality. So uh, people submitted photos uh, over Instagram just by hashtagging them, uh, and uh, they had 30,000 photos to choose from. I think they're going to choose a couple hundred, they said. And one of the images that I had included that hashtag on was selected for admission into this program. So the photo is going to be displayed at the International Center of Photography with another couple hundred photos when they get this show up and running. I think uh, at first it's going to be online and then it's going to be in person as well when the uh, the ICP reopens on the Lower East Side there in Manhattan. Um, Most recently I had something uh, happen with Polaroid. Um, I take a lot of Polaroids and I scan them sometimes or take photos of them and throw them on Instagram and uh, Polaroid contacted me about licensing the use of one of my photos for a future packaging design, sort of random. And they sent me a few bucks and they sent me a new camera and I signed a licensing agreement to let them do it. And it was just a selfie of my son and I, but it was just kind of a cute photo and I guess it um, touched the right strings uh, down there. But what I'm trying to get to uh, by explaining all these things is not just to brag about them. You can see that half of these come as a result of my day job. And I know that probably the vast majority of you are not professional photographers and you have a day job. Well, can you incorporate photography into your day job to get your photos published and have, you know, have that be a platform to build your resume photographically? That's what I've done. I'm always looking for an opportunity to take a photo at work. Luckily, I'm surrounded by things going on at work that are interesting to take photos of, and uh, I'm able to take that and, and throw it out there. So, um, I don't know, you know, if you work at a factory, you know, maybe there is a marketing department that's looking for images about the people of the factory or how they're responding to the COVID-19 crisis, um, how they're taking safety measures. 
well, hiring a, hiring a photographer, you know, maybe there's not a photographer in your area. I'm not at all saying that we need to try to not hire professional photographers. That's not true. However, if you're aspiring to become a professional photographer, or if you are an accomplished photographer and at your place of employment, they're looking for photos, I hope that you're taking the opportunity to raise the hand uh, with the camera in it and say, can I take a crack at this? Put together a portfolio, put together a website, show it to your bosses or your coworkers. Put yourself out there. You got to take a chance and put yourself out there. I also get an opportunity sometimes to teach photography at work. Just this week, I have a, um, a landscape photography workshop on Thursday night, and we had 10 paying customers that are going to take that class. And uh, we're going to meet outdoors uh, with a social distancing requirements in place. And uh, we're going to go through uh, the basics all the way to more advanced uh, landscape photography. So it's a way I've also been able to incorporate photography into my work. But being published, uh, getting your work online or, you know, having it out there is not an easy path. There are a billion photographers literally out there in the world and everybody has an iPhone uh, that uh, can take great images as well. So you really have to incorporate excellent photography with charisma, charm, cunning, and intellect. Um, you know, I don't care how great your photos are. If nobody sees them, if you don't put them out there, if you don't uh, advocate for your photos, there's a good chance that they're never going to see the light of day in any sort of published forum, uh, at least a non-self-published forum. So um, please, you know, consider raising your hand. If you have a story about this, have you ever done this? Have you ever used your photography at work? Or have you ever, um, you know, convinced your boss or coworkers to use your photography and it resulted in, in work being out there in the world? I'd love to hear that because, um, you know, these have been some mountaintops for me to climb uh, to have photos with my credit under them. And in some of these publications that I mentioned, it was just a, it was huge. And Again, I'm not trying to brag about those things. I just wanted to explain like where I'm positioned and the, the work that I've done to try to get my images out there. The other things that you can do, of course, are self-publishing. You know, get your stuff in print. And, uh, you know, we'll talk about that in a future episode. I want to talk about blurb and some other things. I have an opportunity with some grant funds that we got to produce a book of, uh, of photography that explains the work of the Land Conservancy. So, again, this is work-related. Um, but it's my images and I'm going to get to see them in print. And uh, I have some resources to print a good number of these copies. We will probably put that on the podcast as an opportunity for you to um, purchase a book of my photography and also support the Saginaw Basin Land Conservancy, our nonprofit, in, uh, in so doing. So maybe we'll talk about that in a future future episode. But um, yeah, I wanted to just uh, wrap up this episode and talk a little bit about the manual photo approach uh, that I like to take. And I want to revisit the M10D for a very special reason. Luckily for us, uh, Leica cameras lend themselves to manual photography like no other camera. So if you are new to photography and you just became familiar with the exposure triangle, or if you are an advanced photographer and the exposure triangle is tattooed on the inside of your eyelids and you know it better than uh, better than you know the names of your children, um, you know, the Leica camera, especially the M series, the Q cameras like this are um, just remarkable tools for you to use the exposure triangle to your advantage and your creative photography. So I have been shooting almost exclusively fully manual for this for this entire year, uh, even on the Q2, which uh, is absolutely excellent when it comes to autofocus, when it comes to auto aperture, auto shutter speed, auto ISO. Uh, I keep everything manual because it's so easy to adjust them. Uh, the one cheat I might have is auto ISO. You know, I might put auto ISO on and put my limits within, let's say, 100 to 1600 
and go from there. But um, for the most part, I like to set it to like 400 and then just go with it. Um, because uh, even if you're a little underexposed, a little overexposed, usually I can recover those uh, highlights or lowlights out of Q2 files, out of those raw files. But I have found uh, that breaking out of the mold of uh, shooting everything at f2.8, I think I've mentioned this in a previous episode where uh, a photography instructor that I had, he said, you know, well, your images look good, but you're shooting everything at f2.8, like that, that blurred out background and subject isolation it'll make your friends up front, but in the long term, you know, how are you, are you really taking excellent photos or are you relying on gimmicks to make your photos look prettier? And I, I kind of got what he meant. I don't know. I was always shooting wide open because I love that look. And I still largely shoot wide open because I like that look. Um, but it's not always appropriate. And I have found that by shooting entirely manually and then just using aperture to, to get my light meter to hit the right notes, uh, has been, I mean, a lot of you are probably going to say, well, duh, Zach, of course, you know, but I like to hit, hit, set my shutter speed at like, let's say 125th or a 250th of a second and put my ISO at 400 and then just vary my aperture depending on the topic. And the cool thing is, is that my photos all of a sudden don't start to look the same. I have a tendency to form the same compositions and shoot with the same settings all the time. I think a lot of us do. Uh, it's easy to fall into those, you know, those comfortable rhythms that we enjoy. And we sometimes we defend it by saying, well, that's my style, but maybe your style can come through in other ways. Uh, I have found myself shooting a lot more um, stop down at 5.6 and f8 lately. And it's been great because it's like all of a sudden, hey, there's detail in these photos that, uh, you know, before was totally isolated, subject isolated against a blurry background. And now I'm getting much greater depth of field in a lot of my photos because I'm choosing to shoot at a, um, a tighter aperture. That might not be rocket science to anybody, but I personally, with my manual photo approach, is that I set my shutter speed, I set my ISO, and then I vary my aperture. I know some people, um, you know, they might say, well, aperture comes first, and then they're going to vary that shutter speed. And I certainly do that occasionally. I don't know. That's just my personal approach to manual photography. Uh, what do you do when you shoot manually? I know that it's intimidating for a lot of beginners, especially uh, if they haven't had an experience with film photography over the years, where, of course, your ISO is set for your entire role. You don't get to vary that ISO. Uh, you're really only going to have shutter speed and aperture to vary. You know, if you are super deft with your settings, you know, you can have one hand cruising through that aperture ring and another hand cruising through that shutter speed uh, dial. Um, and you can make those adjustments quickly. And, and I have those days where all of a sudden it's like I'm just making quick shutter speed adjustments because I do not want to vary that aperture because I absolutely want that depth of field the way that it is. Especially on the Q because on the Q2 you obviously have an electronic viewfinder and live view. So you're seeing what your exposure looks like in real time. You're seeing what the image is going to look like. It's previewed in real time. So you can check your depth of field. You can check everything. And you know what the photo is going to look like before you before you pull that trigger. But um Let's talk about the M10D for a minute, uh, and I want to couch this by saying I've already talked extensively about the M10D uh, and my sleepless nights over the M10D and how much I love the M10D and the philosophy of it, especially because my main camera is a Q2, and M10D would be a great pair to it because it doesn't have all of those uh, nannies and aids and, and assistance that you get with the Q2. It's absolutely an analog experience, and um since the last episode, I've actually acquired an M10D. This was a huge moment. I, I've talked at length about how um, I was not able to afford a Leica um, just a year ago, and uh, I still am barely able to afford a Leica in terms of the initial cost uh, of purchasing one. 
But uh, my parents helped me buy the Q2, which uh, in part, along with Taylor's story, inspired my philosophy of you know, trying to develop a mission for this podcast by helping others get into the Leica brand. Well, it took me about nine, 10 months, but I've paid off the Q2 to my parents. And immediately my mom said, well, what are we going to do next? Long story short, we found a used M10D online and uh, I bought it from the DC Leica store. Thank you, David. Uh, David, by the way, is an academy instructor and hopefully he will be a guest on the podcast soon. He, we've discussed that and I think that he's up for it. Um, but David, uh, he talked me through the entire process. I ended up buying a very high quality uh, used M10D through the DC store and then a brand new uh, Sumicron 50 millimeter. So an F2, uh, the the non-APO version. So we're talking about the the guy like me can almost afford it version, not the, you know, many, many thousands of dollars version, but the, uh, I absolutely love it so far. Um, but the thing with the M10D, and I'm going to talk probably a lot about it in the future because I've been doing lots of photography with it, is that, um, you know, you obviously do not have a live view. You don't even have the ability to chimp and look at your photos. And uh, that Wi-Fi, uh, David warned me, you got to have a second battery because if you use the Wi-Fi, it eats the batteries alive. And sure enough, it does. So I haven't even been using the Wi-Fi. I've been trying to shoot it like a film camera. So I go out with it, I shoot all my photos, and then I drive home, and then I plug it into the computer. Uh, after taking off that beautiful bottom brass plate and getting the card out, I plug it in, and then I see what I got. And uh, sure enough, there's some underexposures. There's some overexposures. Thankfully, the raw files are good enough that you can usually recover those things. But for the most part, I was kind of impressed. You know, I was very pleased with myself that that really wasn't the case most of the time. I was able to hit the exposures. You've got a light meter in there. If you're using an M camera uh, and you're used to range finders, you, you know that right in there you've got your two little arrows and the dot in the middle. And uh, just like a film camera, you can make sure that your exposures are correct looking through the optical viewfinder. And sure enough, you know, I've been making choices on there just like I would with film to slightly underexpose or slightly overexpose an image or to try to get that exposure exactly right. And uh, I have found that with that particular camera, varying the aperture wildly, you know, between uh, f2 all the way down to f16 and using the full aperture range of that lens has been kind of a joy that gives you all those stops of, of range so going inside to outside shadow to light um, you know working into the sunset of the evening hours now you don't have uh, image stabilization like you do in the queue you don't have uh, as wide an aperture you're not going to f1.7 like you do on the sumo lux that's on the q2 and of course your files aren't nearly as big as the 46 or 47 megapixel sensor that's in the q2 but uh, the files are beautiful that come out of the M10D, and um, I'm getting some interesting shutter drags and effects because you're taking photos like you do with a film camera. Uh, so, you know, hand-holding at a 30th of a second is not always going to get you a sharp image. Uh, although, I've been relatively successful with the M10D because it's heavy, it's stable, and the shutter button is just so light that you're not going to put a lot of uh, vibration into the camera by doing it. That being said, you know, I'm a little more comfortable at, uh, at 60th of a second or at 125th of a second in terms of getting a sharp image. And uh, sometimes that's just not fast enough in order for you to get, or I'm sorry, that's too fast for you to get enough exposure in a low light setting. So um, I have enjoyed the challenges of using the M10D and not knowing what I'm going to get. I have yet to see the photo come out of it where I just, you know, snap and say, holy smokes, that's a great photo. I'm really excited about it, you know, but I haven't shot it that much. I've only had it for a short time uh, and I've probably put about three or 400 photos through it so far and uh, I'm still kind of waiting, but I'm getting to know it. So 
the manual approach with that camera, you know, you've got literally have your mechanical ISO dial like you do on all M cameras. You've got your shutter speed dial and you've got your aperture. That's pretty much it. You do have exposure compensation. I haven't ranged outside of uh, zero. I just leave the exposure compensation the way it is. I just turn the camera on, take my pictures and turn it off. And of course you have manual focus as well. The files do look beautiful and I've surprised myself because it just didn't occur to me how relatively easy it is to get sharp photos with a rangefinder, especially when you're stopping down. So, I mean, that, I don't know. I'm new to M's, obviously. You know, you know, I've been a Q2 shooter, so I'm new to M's. But shooting down at f8, uh, especially out in you know the daylight, you're going to get you can shoot low ISO, comfortable shutter speed. Shoot at f8, f11. Well, your depth of field is huge when you're doing it that way, and you're looking down at the rangefinder on the lens or, or your you know your range on the lens and I'm doing my best. I've got glasses, so looking through a rangefinder, optical viewfinder is not always the easiest thing to come up with a perfectly sharp. If I had a, if I had a Noctilux, I can only imagine it would be a struggle for me to get everything correctly in focus if you're shooting at f0.95. But when you're shooting down at f8, uh, you've got a pretty broad depth of field. If that rangefinder focusing patch is pretty darn close, it's going to be close enough and your subject is going to be in focus, which is kind of, I don't know why that was a revelation to me that you don't have to sit there and really fuss with it and get that rangefinder absolutely perfect down to the split hair uh, of an eyelash and make it absolutely perfect. If you're shooting at a closed down aperture like that, your depth of field is plenty that if you're close enough, everything is going to be in focus that you're trying to shoot at. And I really, all of a sudden it like dawned on me, holy cow, you know, when these photographers, these street photographers talk about setting it and forgetting it, you know, they're, they're setting it to F8 or F11. They're doing their shutter speed at, let's say a 500th of a second. And they've got ISO 200 or so, and uh, they're walking around New York city and they're just snapping photos because they know that everything between three meters away and to infinity or three meters to to 10 meters away is going to be in focus or, you know, for us here in the States, we're, you know, maybe more like 10 feet to 25 feet is going to be in focus or three to six feet, whatever it is, whatever your, your thing, if you're Bruce Gilden, you know, then uh, you're going to have to be right up on top of people. So you're looking at uh, focusing uh, much closer. But um, for those of us just walking around and taking street photos and uh, maybe photos on a nature walk or whatever, you can almost set it to infinity, not quite. Uh, and you're going to have plenty of depth of field to get things that are, you know, 15, 10 feet away all the way to infinity in focus. And, um, so you don't need to focus at all. Like once you kind of set it for your conditions and your ISO and shutter speed are right, you can literally just pull it out and it's like, it's in focus. You just snap it and off you go. You don't need to worry about autofocus picking up the correct subject. You just are focused exclusively on your composition. So um, I'd read so much about the M10D and I had handled one before and everybody talked about, well, it's so great because it just distills you down to this, you know, this energy of this super analog moment where you're, you know, you're one with the camera and it's incredible and all that. Um, but I found myself fussing with it a lot at first uh, saying, oh, sheesh, you know, this is tough. And then uh, after shooting a bunch of images, I realized I didn't need to do that. They are in focus. You know, what I, I can trust in my settings, I can trust in my exposure. And um, certainly if my exposure is a little off, if my light conditions are changing, I'm looking through that viewfinder, I'm just making a slight adjustment, one stop, one way or the other on that aperture ring, maybe on the shutter ring, uh, very rarely on the ISO uh, ring, unless I'm going inside or it, it turned, the conditions change completely. So you really can focus on composition and photography with that camera. I will tell you firsthand from experience, that's what it's like. And uh, maybe not for the exact reason that I thought, um, because of the no screen thing. In fact, it turns out the no screen thing isn't at all why the focusing on photography happens for me. It's because of the analog feel, the rangefinder 
focusing system and uh, the the manual controls for ISO and shutter speed. So at any rate, if you're thinking about an M versus a Q2 uh, or a Q, I can't uh, recommend one over the other. They are different tools, different tools for different jobs. Um, I am now extremely fortunate that I've got a bag where I've got a Q2 and an M10D in there. So I've got two very different shooting experiences. Also, um, David uh, very wisely steered me from a 35 to a 50 saying, you know, a 50 is going to be so much different than the, the 28 on the Q2. That's going to give you more variability between those two. So in addition to them being different shooting experiences, different resolutions, different, um, different everything. Now I've got different native focal lengths for them at full frame. So you end up with a, um, you know, one more reason why those two cameras are different and why they're a great complement to one another when you're out there shooting. So that's what I've got. That's my bag, a Q2 and an M10D with a 28 Summa Lux and a 50 Summa Cron. And um, I'm back in the hole to my parents. So my beautiful parents, thank you so much again for uh, helping me be first National Bank of Mom and Dad. Uh, this 43-year-old uh, nonprofit employee photographer, thanks you very much for helping me uh, get uh, further, uh, deeper into the Leica brand. And I'm, uh, I'm really proud to do it. And I'll also thank you, David, for giving me uh, some guidance on purchasing the M10D because so far it's been wonderful. I'm going to use that as an entree to just kind of recap uh, the Leica program that we talked about in the last, uh, in the last episode. Um, it is my dream to build a community on this podcast where we support one another through dialogue, where we uh, talk about photography and creativity. We talk about Leica cameras and we talk about and support one another's work. One of the things that I really would love to do is to develop a program where we can crowdsource resources to help photographers like Taylor, uh, like we talked about in the last episode, get over that mountain to purchase their first Leica camera. I believe firmly that Leicas are a great value. Uh, they are expensive in terms of their price tag, but they are a great value. They do not need to be replaced every couple of years. They are an extremely durable good. They are produced by people that are making a living wage. They're made out of the best materials and the highest quality uh, electronic parts in the, in the world. And uh, of course, on top of all that is the heritage and the intrinsic quality of experience you get when shooting a Leica camera. Otherwise, uh, if I didn't believe that, we wouldn't be here. So I want to help expand that tent. They are necessarily costly. Certainly that up from an investment is significant in terms of the dollar amount. The emotional investment that you get with a Leica camera is not measurable, um, but the, uh, the dollar amount that you need to come up with uh, to cough one up. Although that being said, there's a lot of used ones out there as well. So uh, perhaps in the future we can, uh, we can find partners that can help us uh, find great used cameras for people. Uh, we can find a community that can help contribute resources to put a pool of money together to offer uh, scholarships to individuals that would make great use of these cameras but could otherwise not afford them. I mean, imagine if Taylor uh, had one of these. If you listen to the last episode, you know that she's an EMT. Uh, that she loves to photograph uh, the circumstances around her, these abandoned buildings, things like that. With a Q2 in her hands, that would be amazing to see what she would come up with. Um, but as an EMT, it's taken her a long, long time to raise the money to buy one of those. Understandable. Now, she's going to value that camera and cherish it more than more than anything, I can tell you from my conversations with her. And and certainly, there are a lot of Leica cameras that end up in cabinets uh, behind glass, or they remain in the box as an investment. And that's fine. And that keeps the brand going and that's great. But um, what we want to do is create a set of circumstances where the working class, dirt under the fingernails photographers, get a shot at using these cameras for what they were built for. And that is making news and capturing images and uh, 
making us feel and emote when we see these photos. So if you are interested in helping with the Like a Scholarship program, I would love to hear your thoughts. So please send me an email. You can reach me at zgbrannigan at gmail.com or go to my website, zacharybrannigan.com. Again, links in the description or check out my Instagram, which is at zgbrannigan. So I would love to connect with you on there. Please add me uh, and uh, follow me on there because I'm going to start putting out more news about the podcast there. You'll see my um, the Like a New Day podcast logo is my IG uh, icon. At any rate, uh, absolutely love doing this, and I'm so glad that so many of you seem to have enjoyed it, and uh, we're starting to build a community, and momentum is picking up. Uh, thank you to everybody. Thank you to Neil James. Thank you to David at uh, DC Leica. Thank you to uh, Mark. Uh, thank you to Taylor. Uh, thank you to James for sending me those messages over email. Those have been great. And I wanted, uh, I'm, I'm, it was really wonderful to share them. It meant a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Keep them coming. Uh, if you have any questions about any of the things I've talked about in these episodes too, please feel free to send them and I will answer them on the air. Uh, we'll have another episode coming up in a week or two. So uh, stay tuned. Thanks again. And again, this is the Like a New Day podcast with Zachary Brannigan. Signing out. Talk to you soon. Take care. <laughs>